0: We are continuing our journey into the strategic metals because you demanded it. We are going into cobalt this episode with Ryan Snyder from First Cobalt, and he's in conversation with Frick Ells, mining.com at the Global Mining Symposium. Hello and welcome everyone to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, where we go in depth, as we did last week in the uranium episode with Rowan Reddy. The critical materials, the supply chains, the risks from China of not getting supply rare earths—you get that here on the Northern Miner podcast. We proudly say so. Welcome to another episode. It's a really cool interview. Ryan Snyder is a CFO for First Cobalt. Excellent speaker, just easy to listen to and very insightful. Again, it's not a conference call, of course. Uh, but it's really great to get these executives at their perch because they have a very unique, really crucial view, in a sense in a way that reporters don't have, because they are dealing directly, say, with auto manufacturers, with governments, and reporters aren't in those rooms. So you need someone like Frick Ells at the Global Mining Symposium to ask a bunch of questions to get what's going on over there. Because otherwise, like, it's not something that you can research as a reporter. That's where these interviews become incredibly handy. That's why I like the conference calls as well. Look at what we learned with Barrick, and we called that right. Barrick was not the suitor for Kirkland Lake Gold. It turned out to be Agnico, and and who knows the reasons why. Maybe Barrick wanted it. After all, we don't know any of that, but it turned out to be Agnico in a massive deal. And so we're going to tackle that story We're also going to take a look at this story in Northern Ontario Business on the valet miners at Sudbury's Totem Mine. This was sent to us by a loyal listener, and sounds like they climbed out for hours on ladders. We're going to look closer at that story in the news section. When I first saw that story, I thought, okay, sounds like they have it under control, you know. Everybody's being precautious and people are taking this seriously, but maybe that it wasn't. It, I wasn't super troubled by it. It's troubling, but it, I wasn't super troubled. When you read this story from Northern Ontario Business, you do start to think, wow, you know, something could have happened here. So we're going to take a look at that. We're going to take a look at cobalt supply chains. You know, a big topic right now are these shortening supply chains and Really, it sounds like the West, you know, North America, Europe, Australia, they seem to want to get independence from China and their supply chains, like just big picture. I think in the last couple of years, China, because of the, you know, some people call it actually totalitarian. Uh, Some people say authoritarian, but I'm actually more persuaded by the totalitarian argument uh, because of the... Aggressive moves in China, the anti-capitalist moves, there is a sense there's more consternation, one might say, in the West. And I think China is being seen as basically a riskier proposition than it was, say, five years ago as far as a reliable business partner. And you see the U.S. is coming out and they're going to be calling into question the trade deal and that they are not fulfilling their part of the deal. Now we have stories, say, on the Evergrande issue a Chinese developer misses bond payment as stress spreads beyond Evergrande crisis. That's from CNBC. So, you know what it reminds me of? And I'm hoping we all just rocket ship to the moon this fourth quarter. No one would be happier than I would. And I I think there's probably more than a 50% chance of that happening. My concern is this really reminds me of the pre-COVID market, which was very buoyant. You know, early February, we had a great stock market and the COVID story was just kind of like it just wasn't impacting the stock market and it wasn't impacting and it wasn't impacting until it did. And I wonder with this Evergrand issue if we are approaching a same kind of dynamic. Just a thought. You know, people say the argument that, oh, you know, this is all in Chinese currencies for the most part. So, you know, there's nothing to worry about. And we're also discussing how relatively speaking, this isn't the same, even though it's, you know, nominally half the amount from Lehman, which is significant. We're in a completely different era, and relatively speaking, and so it's not quite of the same magnitude. Nevertheless, if we start getting contagion, which it kind of looks like with the CNBC headline of this Chinese developer missing a bond payment, I don't think anybody really knows how that turns out. I don't think anybody knows, and I don't know if how much we can bet that the Chinese government is going to, how much they're going to bail out. Or I don't think we can be certain of anything in that regard. So dramatic as ever, isn't it? You know, uh, we started this September, this quarter, calling this a news cycle in search of a narrative. I think we're having a creeping narrative. The markets remain at an inflection point, Bitcoin's just at 50,000 you know it wants to break out but this thing could break lower too everything stock market technically is hurting and it looks like it wants to go down from a technical basis tightening in the works so anyways on and on it goes you all know the story we have a great show lined up you're not going to want to miss this episode if you want to find us online you can find us at northernminer.com you can find us on instagram at the northern miner it is back up and running after yesterday's outage. You can also find us on Twitter, at Northern Miner. And you can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the news, let's first take a look at this Northern Ontario business story. Valley Miner describes a long climb out of Sudbury's Totten Mine. And this is by Heidi Rickson with Northern Ontario Business. It says here, at 60 years old, Perry Venadam was one of the oldest miners stranded underground at Valet's Totten Mine on Sunday after a piece of equipment being slung to the bottom became lodged in the shaft and put the cage lift system out of operation. Along with 39 other Valley employees, he was forced to use a secondary egress ladder system to ascend out of the mine with the help of mine rescuers who ensured they were able to climb safely with the help of fall arrest equipment. In a situation that has grabbed national media headlines, the valet employees have gradually emerged from the mine this week, with the last group coming out at 4.45 a.m. Wednesday morning. With more than 30 years of underground experience under his belt, Venadem, a heavy equipment mechanic who's been with valet for 16 years, helped to keep the other employees calm as they ascended to the surface. A younger man who was climbing along with him said his arms were starting to get sore, so Venedem said they should stop and take a break and that they were in no rush. Quote, The group that was ahead of us, I said, Hey, young guys, I'm coming through, said Venadem, who said he actually experienced a similar situation 20 years ago when he was forced to climb ladders out of a mine. In this case, Venedem was at the 3,150 level of the mine and needed to climb 2,500 feet to the 650 level where they were able to catch a cage to the surface. It took him three and a half hours starting Monday just before midnight and emerging from the mine at around 3.30 a.m. Tuesday morning. He said his arms and legs are still a little sore, but other than that, he's feeling just fine. And it also says here that while he was waiting for mine rescue to set up their operations, Venadem watched movies on his iPad, tried to get some sleep, and kept in contact with family members. He also helped the mine rescue team deliver food to his fellow workers. So, you know, if you've ever been in a mine, I've only been in a mine once. It was Western Pacific Resources, I think they're called American Pacific now, and they had a mine by Salt Lake City and uh, that was the one time I've actually been in a mine and uh, I can't imagine actually being stuck that deep. I mean, the sense of claustrophobia that you must get must be pretty intense, so it must be kind of scary, you know? We looked at that story and we thought, okay, they have it under control, but Credit to the rescue team and credit to those miners that were down there. Like I, I'm i not sure, like I said last week, I wonder if a couple of them are questioning the decision to be a miner after a situation like that. So glad it all worked out uh, and great reporting there from Heidi Ulrikson at Northern Ontario Business. Now, taking a look at this Agnico-Kirkland Lake merger, this is by Cecilia Jamasmi. And it says here that Canadian gold miners, Ignico Eagle Mines and Kirkland Lake Gold, announced that they are combining their businesses in a stock deal valued at $13.5 billion Canadian. Rumors of an imminent MA deal involving Kirkland pushed its shares up as much as 8.5% on Monday. And so, yeah, and we reported on that. Henry Lazenby reported on that. And it's always tricky reporting a rumor, but this one turned out to be correct. The combined miner will have a market capitalization of approximately $24 billion, which is fairly substantial. Once closed, the merger would also leave Agnico with $2.3 billion of liquidity available, a mineral reserve base of 48 million ounces of gold, and a pipeline of development and exploration projects. And here's where things get interesting. The global gold miner is expected to generate 3.4 million ounces of gold this year. And we remember Barrick is around 4.85 million ounces of gold per year. Newmont is six or seven. So Agnico is approaching the top tier. And it continues that this could herald more consolidation in the gold industry, where investors look for deals that unlock value, Agnico Eagle CEO Sean Boyd said during a conference call on Tuesday, Agnico shareholders will own 54% of the combined company, while those of Kirkland Lake will... Have a forty-six percent ownership, so it just goes to show how far Kirkland Lake has come. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago, if I remember correctly, their stock was trading at about five bucks, and this closed at fifty dollars and sixty-three cents per share for Kirkland Lake. So they have come a long way, while Agnico has not really done anything in the last ten years they're basically where they were and it continues here a quote from Sean Boyd both companies don't have to do this strategic rationale makes sense and the industrial logic is there and that's exactly the sense i get i mean we remember the conference call with Sean Boyd where he basically said he was more than happy to stay at 2 million ounces of gold per year and grow it you know 10% you know and go to 2.2 million ounces the next year and so on and grow slow and steady I think we even had a headline to that effect for the podcast. But it sounds like, you know, Kirkland Lake came on the market and it was probably just a deal that was too good to pass up. I mean, it fits their profile beautifully with, you know, Canada and maybe Australia isn't typical Ignico Eagle territory, but Canada sure is. And this is also interesting. The new Ignico Eagle will be led by a combined board and management team. Boyd, its current boss, will become executive chairman, while Kirkland Lake CEO Tony McCook will be the combined company's CEO. So these guys have to like each other for this to work. And we're talking about a pretty serious shakeup at both companies. Another quote from Sean Boyd, The deal is more about the number of mines and location of mines in terms of manageability rather than an overall ounce number. So that is the story And we have an analysis from Kerry Smith from Haywood Securities. And this is quite interesting. This is by Trish Saywell. Agnico Eagle and Kirkland Lake gold merger is likely the last major deal in Canada. And according to Kerry Smith from Haywood Securities, quote, most of the big deals are done. Talking about Canada. There are going to be acquisitions of assets by some of the mid-tiers. That's what's going to come next. I think we'll see mid-tier mining companies buying single asset development stage companies companies like Rupert Resources, Moneta and Bella Sun mining and others companies that are in super easy jurisdictions to work with having assets in safe and familiar jurisdictions was one of the key drivers and rationales behind the tie up of Agnico and Kirkland Lake Smith says Kirkland Lake's assets are in Canada and Australia while Agnico's are in Canada, Finland and Mexico and we have a quote, in terms of the assets they are acquiring and the regions they're in, I think it's all pretty complementary, So it's really a smart deal. And on the other suitors that were discussed in the rumors, Smith notes that there were rumors floating around that Kirkland Lake might merge with one of a number of other companies, including Barrick Gold, Newmont, or even Newcrest Mining. Kerry Smith says, quote, if I'm on the board of Kirkland Lake Gold, I'd much rather link up with Agnico than Barrick. Barrick has operations all over Africa, so there's stuff that they have in their portfolio that Agnico and Kirkland Lake would not be interested in at all. Newmont would be the same because it has a lot of operations in Africa, and Newcrest has assets in countries other than Australia and Canada as well. He continues, two-thirds of the combined company will be in Canada, which Agnico understands very well and Australia is a stable jurisdiction. Agnico has been over and looked at the Fosterville operation, and it's pretty self-sufficient and runs pretty well. Agnico has a lot of experience in underground mining, and some of that will be useful at Fosterville, but Australia also has good miners. And he also says this is a quantum-sized deal for Agnico. It's doubling the company's size. Again, Kirkland Lake, what a story how they came out of nowhere. Quote, the reason Agnico's board is positive is that I don't think the integration will be nearly as difficult as if it were to buy something else with assets in different jurisdictions where they've never worked before. So Kerry Smith really is just hammering home the point of jurisdiction. And this is one of the big themes we have seen in the last two years, particularly post-COVID jurisdiction. Uh, But it was already there before. And it's always been important, but really these last two years, it's, it's been highlighted. And you heard Mark Bristow talk about Canada as well. Kerry Smith also says, quote, we've finally got another really big Canadian mining company. They're going to have 85% of their reserves in Canada and 75% of their production is going to be in Canada. I like the deal. It's great. So there you have it. Kerry Smith approves of the tie-up between Ignico Eagle and Kirkland Lake, and it sounds like they're going to keep the Ignico name, which I think makes sense. And finally, just a few headlines, because we're short on time here. BHP has inked a nickel supply deal with Toyota Panasonic Battery Venture. So this is also a topic that we're seeing, which is this idea, and it comes up in the Cobalt interview, which is this idea that corporations are trying to secure their supply, because it's no longer taken for granted that if you need nickel, you can just go out and get some nickel. That is also what could become a theme of the decade, Another headline, lithium-ion battery recycling market to reach $31 billion per year by 2040. You know, that sounds very speculative, doesn't it? BHP opens Australia's first nickel sulfate plant. And then Horizonte Minerals secures more funds for Araguaia Nickel Project. See all the nickel stories, and we're going to see here coming up in metal prices how nickel is staying elevated. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. prices. We are at October 5th, and the 10-year bond is trading at 1.524%, and that is down 0.022%. Now, interestingly, earlier in the day is at 1.48%. Now, this may seem arcane to some of you out there that are not concerned with the 10-year bond, but it really is, you know. I'm not an expert in these things, but it is a benchmark of sorts on basically where the bond market is. It's very important and of where inflation, the economy, there's, as I call it, it's the oracle, it's the tea leaves. So we are down slightly. It was down a little bit more earlier, but it basically perked back up in the last couple of hours. So interestingly, it is above one and a half percent. And I tell you, Wall Street likes to keep tabs on that. As we go into metal prices, and we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. On October 5th, gold is trading at $1,760.31 per ounce. That is $18 higher than last week, but still well below $1,800. Silver is trading at $22.61 per ounce. That is $0.20 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at Nine hundred and sixty-six dollars and forty cents per ounce. That is that is thirteen dollars lower than last week. And palladium continues to trade lower at one thousand nine hundred fifteen dollars and ninety-five cents per ounce. So that is thirty-five dollars lower. So really, I mean, about a year ago, platinum was as high as twenty-eight hundred dollars, and now it's at nineteen hundred and fifteen. So really, coming unwound that trade. Very interestingly, you wonder if it has to do with electric vehicles and maybe you don't need palladium for electric vehicles like you need it for uh, gas powered vehicles. That's probably what's going on. And, you know, this hidden cost of palladium, if you're a car manufacturer, auto manufacturer, you might start considering to make the move to EVs faster faster. If you see a $2,800 palladium price and you need that stuff, as far as I understand, for environmental reasons, the catalytic converter, so I hear. So on to our industrial metals. Copper is trading at $4.13 per pound. That is $0.08 lower. Aluminum is trading at $1.30 per pound. That is $0.02 lower. Lead is unchanged at $0.98 per pound. Nickel is trading at $8.22 per pound. That is $0.48 lower than last week. Tin is also lower at $16.15 per pound. That is $0.87 lower. And cobalt is a penny lower at $24.03 per pound. And zinc is also lower at $1.36 per pound, which is $0.05 lower than last week. What do we see? Again, down but still elevated. I mean everything. It's basically everything is a little bit down, maybe risk off slightly, but still quite elevated. So... You know, nickel above $8, tin at $16. It's not exactly coming unwound, is it? And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Ryan Snyder, Chief Financial Officer for First Cobalt. And he's in conversation with... Frick Ls at the Global Mining Symposium. Fascinating discussion on the shortening of supply chains as well as as well as what's going on in the cobalt market and the increasing importance of ESG friendly metals. Uh, as Ryan says, it's more just anecdotal what he's hearing from companies, but this idea of a premium on certain metals that are ESG sourced is becoming is becoming more of a prominent theme in the conversation. He was at inmet mining for five years before in operations finance. He was part of the team that negotiated the friendly merger of Primero with First Majestic in 2018. And he also went to the Kellogg School of Management where he has an EMBA. So I hope you enjoy it. He is an excellent speaker and I will see you on the other side.
1: is the CFO of First Cobalt. I believe you joined the company in 2017. We could probably just talk the whole half an hour just about what happened between 2017 and 2021 with First Cobalt. I mean you've been very active. You have lots of irons in the fire, but let's start with what is Cobalt Central, which is the Congo, the DRC. I believe uh, first Cobalt had a look around in the DRC. You kicked some tires there. Can you tell us what happened?
2: Hi, Frick, and hi everyone. Thanks for thanks for having me on. The DRC, I guess, investigation was before my time. You know, if you want to source cobalt globally right now, you you almost have to go to the DRC. That's where the majority of the cobalt resides, about 70% of the world's cobalt. First, Cobalt being an up-and-coming cobalt company back in 2017, 2018, was looking for the best sources of cobalt around the world. The DRC would be the predominant one. It is a little difficult for a small outside party to establish itself in the DRC. And so over the course of the last few years, we've kind of changed our strategy to focusing Outside the DRC, um, looking to be the North American hub for cobalt, but understanding that that's where the cobalt is coming from today, aligning ourselves with the more established kind of tier one miners in the DRC, as that is really the ethical feed that's available today from the Congo and from the main source of of cobalt in the world.
1: And just elaborating on, on the Congo, we have to talk about the three C's, which is Congo, China, and cobalt. China has a stranglehold on the battery metal supply chain. I mean, more specifically cobalt, but other areas as well. They control something like 80% of the midstream markets. Chinese companies, China, Mali, etc., have been buying up cobalt mines there. How does first cobalt fit into this whole scenario?
2: yeah, it's it's a great question. and And you're bang on. Um, about eighty to eighty five percent of the world's refined cobalt is now controlled in China and produced in China. I think from a first cobalt point of view, we're trying to give you know the the, the global buyers an outlet that's not not within China. So if you look at cobalt refining capacity worldwide, as I said, 80 to 85% China, the only other major global producer of refined cobalt is cochola in Finland. And you know, we would be the second one in the world, the second largest outside of China when we come online towards the end of next sure. year. And if you're looking to shorten supply chains, you know, there is an ESG angle. Most of the Chinese refineries are coal powered. There's some concerns with some of the Chinese refineries about blending and, and the source of material. And we're really trying to differentiate ourselves and and go to the automakers and their battery suppliers and say, we know the origin of the cobalt. We're only gonna take it from two sources right now. We are established in North America so we can have shorter supply chains. And we're really in a good spot to feed the U.S. auto market and the battery market as it starts to develop, as well as Europe. Shorter shipping distances to the U.S. and Europe are better for carbon emissions and and everything that people are starting to put at the top of their their list in terms of key
1: objectives. And I mean, we've heard a lot about the green energy transition, and I I do get the sense that uh, not just cobalt, but lots of metals, including copper, the center of gravity in mining is shifting westwards. I mean, Europe has a very strong program of investment in battery manufacturing, etc. There seems to be greater awareness in North America about uh, critical minerals, etc. I should read a quote from the U.S. Department of Energy in April this year. Cobalt is considered the highest material supply chain risk for electric vehicles in the short and medium term. Now, not sure what medium term, you know, medium term can be, if can be five years or seven years or ten years, but I'm interested in the fact that your strategy is that you are starting with a refinery. You also have a project in Idaho, but this is your first first entry into the market. Explain a bit about First Cobalt's uh, strategy here. Sure. Yeah.
2: And I think you know we we really think this refinery is a unique asset, and so our strategy is to try to get to cash flow and to be a North American top tier premium cobalt supplier. As quickly as we can. I think our mining asset in Idaho is very interesting to us, but that is that is more of a five or six year kind of project to bring that into production. But in the shorter term, as you mentioned, Frick, you see Europe building out their battery supply chain, their cell plants, their cathode plants. That's going to come to North America. We think the U.S. is about two to three years behind Europe, and really we can have a first mover advantage by establishing our refinery here. Um, we're well on our way in terms of permits. We have our construction financing. And we would be the only one in North America kind of able to serve the US as it builds out and Europe as it builds out. And so really, we looked at, you know, the, the worldwide landscape and saw ourselves in a really good position to be a first mover um, in terms of a producing entity in the short term. Idaho, we're we're still very interested in it. You know, we view cobalt as something that's going to be the dominant battery chemistry will contain cobalt for the next 10 years. And in Idaho, we're, we're very confident we'll get bigger. And as we move to four or five, six years from now could be an asset we could bring online and and come up with a, an actual local source of cobalt for the North American market.
1: And that is a, uh, the ideal project is it's a primary cobalt project. And I mean, there's only one in the whole wide world in Morocco at the moment. So do uh, you want to be number two? I think we want to be one of, one of the first, right? There, there's another uh, cobalt
2: company um, developing a mine in, in Idaho as well. I right. think. You know, we we trust our geologists, you know, the U.S. Geological Survey as well said the Idaho Cobalt Belt is uh, the most abundant cobalt area or the most prospective cobalt area in North America. As we said, most of the world's cobalt is coming from the DRC as a byproduct of the copper mines or as a byproduct of nickel and some of the other operations like Ballet and Glencore operations around the world. But there is no primary cobalt source in the world other than the, the one Moroccan entity you mentioned. Frick. And so we really think the world's gonna need a lot more cobalt moving forward. Uh, we really think prices will remain at today's level and, and move a bit higher. So there won't be quite the same um, yo-yoing and volatility that, that has occurred over the last three to five years. And as those prices stabilize and continue to move up, we think Idaho becomes an area that can be economic for primary cobalt mining um, to, right. to serve the worldwide market.
1: Speaking of prices, I had a look this morning. Cobalt sulfate is around twelve, twelve thousand dollars on a twenty percent basis. That's up forty percent this year. Cobalt metal is firmly above fifty k, which is up almost sixty percent. Same with hydroxide, uh, up uh, over sixty percent. But We've, of course, we've seen this before. Um, cobalt can be a heartbreaker. You are uh, firm in your belief that we haven't that this is sort of a base to work from, current prices.
2: Yeah, I think that's our view, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, it has been very volatile in the past. Cobalt was as high as as forty three dollars a pound um, in in 2018, uh, before dropping down to to twelve or thirteen dollars a pound. Um, I think you know the long term view of what's driving cobalt prices is now coming more into a short-term focus. You know, the push for electric vehicles, whether it's the US in terms of their their investments in electrification, whether it's the world realizing from a climate change perspective that that we need to act now. I think you'll see in Europe, and it's been it's been talked about, you know, significant taxes for for gas-powered cars um, in the future and and really a, a more concerted push towards electric vehicles for real this time. I think most people would look at the world, if you look at all the automakers in the world, They've all directed their R&D to electric vehicles. There's nobody that's putting billions of dollars into the next gas-powered car, and mm-hmm. you know that's a good kind of leading indicator that if all the auto companies are moving to electric vehicles, the stability of demand for cobalt should be there for the foreseeable right. future and should hold those prices up.
1: Yeah, and I mean there's there's a lot, been a lot of talk about you know changing chemistries. We've heard about the iron sulfate battery that's very popular, no cobalt in there. Tesla, Elon Musk says uh, he he tells everyone no more cobalt in his vehicles, and then uh, the next week he signs an off-take somewhere in the DRC. What is happening in terms of in terms of thrifting of cobalt? I mean, it is an expensive metal. So you don't want too much cobalt in there.
2: Yeah, and it, it's a question we get often. Uh, yeah. I think you know we you know follow a lot of cobalt research and and um, deal with a lot of experts in the space. I think that the global view is 80 to 85% of the battery chemistries over the next 10 years will contain cobalt. Um, The two main battery chemistries being NCM, so nickel cobalt manganese and NCA, uh, nickel cobalt aluminum, which is what goes into a Tesla. There are other chemistries, as you know, Frick, uh, the LFP, which does not contain cobalt, that is mainly used in very short range cars. Um, So popular in China, not really made for the North American market, Um, Tesla does not really sell cars with with that battery in North America right now. And most of the other auto companies are using uh, nickel, cobalt, manganese uh, battery chemistries. I think what we will see is some cobalt thrifting. I think that's true. We do expect the percentage of cobalt in a a battery to go down over time. But the sheer increase in demand for electric vehicles and total batteries um, really has uh, cobalt demand looking at about an 18 to 20 percent kind of annual growth rate over the next 10 years. I think the Tesla point is an interesting one. And, and you know, Elon Musk has a big following. He's, he's a very vocal guy. He's often talked about engineering cobalt out. Uh, you know, we view that as more of an aspirational thing. He said that right. three or four years ago as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, interesting to point out, you know, you pointed out the offtake, but even on, on Tesla's website, on Tesla's impact statements, Elon right. Musk is quoted as saying, yeah, we expect it to come down, but make no mistake, we're going to need more cobalt than we need today uh, for our right. Teslas going forward, because the sheer demand for cars and batteries will will far outpace the ability to thrift. So I do think we will see some thrifting. We expect that. Um, you can't take cobalt all the way out today for long-range vehicles. It's what gives cars thermal stability, make sure they don't catch on fire, and you don't want to be the automaker or the battery maker whose, whose cars catch on fire. And so the safety aspect is, is critical to the world today, and, and we think cobalt will remain in batteries for you know for the foreseeable future.
1: You know, when it comes to electric cars, people are only just beginning to talk about about fires. Um, I mean, there was a huge recall from the Korean manufacturers. Every now and then, you see a, a video of, of a Tesla, uh, you know, up in flames, and uh, you know, cobalt is essential to that. Apart from that, it's also, uh, especially the European manufacturers, they have put all their R&D development into NCM. Yes, the new chemistries are going to come along, but you don't you know, just throw away five years of development uh, on a certain chemistry path. So yeah, I, I have to agree with you that you know, cobalt is going to be around no matter what Elon Musk wants to tell his investors. What I find interesting about your strategy is um, you also have uh, recycling in there, your your plant is capable to handle recycling. And I, I only learned this uh, recently, but you're talking about a black mass when it comes to battery recycling. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, first cobalt and, and recycling. Sure,
2: yeah, and so, you know, for our refinery, the, the base load input is gonna be cobalt hydroxide, which is the cobalt coming from the DRC. We have aligned with the two major producers there. But black mass is really interesting. So black mass is really the ground down material you would get from recycled lithium-ion batteries, whether that's from electric vehicles in the future as they start to reach the end of life, or from consumer electronics today. Uh, it's going to contain cobalt, nickel, a bit of copper, a bit of lithium. Kind of all the battery metals are ground up into this black mass. And we've been, you know, looking at ways to to grow beyond our baseline refinery. We do feel that recycled batteries is the way to go. We feel if you're looking to be the greenest and most sustainable provider of cobalt, there's nothing greener than continuing to reuse the battery materials and, and reduce um, the amount of future mining you need, especially in some difficult areas. We have been you know, quietly working with black mass providers, you know, testing some material, uh, running leach tests with, with our lab partners. And we do have a leading engineering firm uh, named Confidential running through studies on the yeah. economics of putting black mass through our facility. Uh, we do believe our hydromet process uh, will be able to take that in. And so what we'd really be looking at is adding some black mass uh, to increase our output on the early days, and then eventually adding a circuit to produce a nickel sulfate and, and other battery materials so that we can be more than just a cobalt provider, but really a, a battery materials um, feedstock provider to the next leg of the, um, the supply chain.
1: Do you envisage or see a kind of a two-tier market developing, that there is, a, there is a cobalt supply chain that supplies North America and Europe, and then there is something else, there is the China uh, supply chain, um, and maybe prices would be different in different markets? I think that's our view, um, and especially
2: with our commercial team as well. It's very tough to quantify what that price difference mm-hmm. would be. And, and in our underlying you know, numbers that would be in our presentation or website, we don't try to put a premium above the Chinese price on our cobalt, but we think that's realistic. We've heard you know, anecdotally in conversations with potential buyers that they are willing to pay more um, for non-Chinese cobalt if they know the origin, if they know it's mm-hmm. not blended if they know it has good ESG credentials, if they know it's a, a sure contract and a shorter supply chain, uh, there is a market out there for for that product being a premium product. I think we will see that, but the extent to which um, the premium will will be is tough to know. But conversationally, I think that's where the world is going. Premium, conflict-free, green cobalt will will be a premium.
1: You also have a phase uh, in your in your future plans where you manufacture precursors. So how important is the vertical integration that you have here?
2: Yeah, I, I think that is a goal. You know right now it's to get the cobalt sulfate plant up and running and then move into battery recycling and start to produce some of those other materials. We have a very large land package in Ontario. It would make sense to look to to go to the next step in the supply chain, which is precursor. From an economics point of view, you can skip the final step in the cobalt sulfate production. You don't need to crystallize it if you don't have to ship it around the world. If you're able to just send it to a precursor plant next door, so you will save uh, a decent chunk of opex. So there is um, kind of economic sense to doing that. And um, we've had some good conversations, you know, with various various levels of government that this would make sense for Canada and its auto supply chain and, and for North America as a whole. So. No, I, I don't want to you know say that that strategy is, is further developed than it truly is, but it is something we're looking at. We think it makes a lot of sense. And we think once the cobalt sulfate plant is up and running, we have that critical mass in terms of land right. and infrastructure and production capabilities that it would make sense to start to build out some of the other parts of the supply chain kind of right next door on our property.
1: I also get the sense you know, after years of talk, of government support or that, that uh, equation is finally changing. Uh, I mean, uh, the West looked on while China was getting a chokehold on not just cobalt, on rare earths. We, we know that story well. Do you think there's, a, there's more of a fundamental change in how governments view mining, view critical minerals? Are we going to go beyond making lists of critical minerals and then uh, filing it away? I hope so.
2: I mean, I think in our case, the governments in Canada have have been very good to us. I think they understand, you know, cobalt, specifically cobalt, nickel, you've had other presentations on nickel, they're critical minerals, and they're important to the auto supply chain. So that is very important to Ontario and Canada as a whole. You know, we have um, a $5 million grant from the government of Ontario, a five million zero dollar zero interest loan from the government of Canada. So they have shown support on that side of things. You're right, there's often just a list and this is a critical mineral and we should do something about it. We are talking to the US about ways to do that. Um, I know other companies are as well. They are looking at securing kind of cobalt supply and making sure it doesn't all go to China. You know, They have funded us for for studies on metallurgy for our Iron Creek asset in Idaho to try to look at ways to upgrade the cobalt and have it not leave the United States. So. Hopefully, we're at the the tip of the iceberg to move beyond just lists and talk and into into true investments, ways to ease kind of new projects in, in North America, and and I think that's going to come. I think the government see uh, where they need to step in.
1: And and it's it's not as if uh, Canada doesn't have a history with cobalt. Uh, I mean, if I if I remember correctly, the Northern Miner uh, started in a town called Cobalt. So uh, there is a rich history here um, and we, you know, kind of let, let it slip away. I think that's right. Our,
2: our refinery is located in the town of Cobalt in Ontario. So aptly named, um, that was an old historic kind of silver cobalt mining area, but but mm-hmm. people obviously cared more about the silver a hundred years ago than the cobalt, but it, it does speak to a rich history in Canada. Um, and, and hopefully, um, you know, this will move beyond you know, one of the niche battery metals to being an important kind of core metal for everybody moving forward over the next few
1: years in idaho it's also a past producing area i mean there are i don't know exactly how it works but the u.s defense minerals act uh, is is in place there or can you tell us a little bit more about that
2: yeah i mean our property there is some history it was actually mined for iron and copper or, or looked at for iron and copper by miranda and other owners kind of 30 or 40 years ago There is an old existing mine in Idaho, the Blackbird Mine, uh, now owned by Glencore, which produced a variety of metals, including cobalt, um, in the past. And and Idaho is a very pro-mining jurisdiction. So I think, you know, the U.S. looks at all the states, right, looks at where these critical minerals can come from, looks at Idaho as the most prospective place. And whether it's Department of Defense or Department of Energy, is starting to look at is there ways we can incentivize, you know, companies to actually extract these minerals from the ground so that we don't need to rely on other areas of the world as much, which has become a, a pretty dominant theme, right, over the last few years, whether it's COVID or, or relations with China in general.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Excellent. Thanks, everyone. Take care.
0: Another fascinating discussion on the critical metals and taking place at the Global Mining Symposium. That is a quarterly event and it is free to attend highly recommend checking it out. Just go to events.northernminer.com and you can check out the next one. Thanks once again for listening to the podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, just leave us a review in the Apple podcast directory or share it with your friends. Until next week, take care.